pray with me, please? Father, we have just sung truth. For all of us know that we fall short of your glory still. You are high and holy and exalted and lifted up above the heavens, above the earth. The heavens, the sea, the dry land, all belongs to you and all that is in it. You alone are to be worshipped as God. And yet, Lord, we trifle. Simple and ordinary things that keep us from loving you as we ought and serving you as we should. Uh, Our song that we have just sung is a confession, but we look forward to the, the time that we might see your face and behold it forever. Father, in the meantime, here on this earth, would you help us to, to serve and worship you alone, to let go of the things that hold us back from eternity, that hold us back from serving you properly, that become idols in our, in our life, lesser gods. But you are the only God with whom we have to do. And so we turn to your word now and pray that you would help us to see you as you are, and to worship you. Set us free, Father, from the the besetting sins in our life and the things that do hold us back. We turn now to your word. In the name of Christ, our Savior, amen. Hope you have your Bibles, and if you have them with you, I hope that you'll take them now and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last week, we, we looked at uh, verses 1 through 6, and this morning we're going to finish the chapter, and we're going to see what this is all about, this whole idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So please turn there with me, and if you have a copy of the Word of God, it is our practice to stand up as we read God's Word, um, because we believe that if this is the time that God is certainly speaking and so, would you please give attention to the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read verses 7 through 13, the Word of God. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So we are continuing this topic of idle speculation. This is idle speculation part two. Um, The question on the table in Corinth that Paul is dealing with is, is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols or idol food as I like to call it? I think it's uh, shorter, but it's uh, accurate. Uh, Is it okay to eat this idol food? And the Corinthians think that they know the answer. They are the ones who are in the know. But their knowledge is nothing but idle speculation. Their knowledge is not enough. They're speculating, but they do not have a true knowledge about the subject. And Paul is filling them in. He's filling in the gaps for them that they might really understand what the truth is in the matter. So let's just go through a quick review here from last week. There were many pagan temples in Corinth. And everyone was a worshiper of some god. You had the Christians who worshipped the god of, uh, they worshipped Jesus Christ. There were Jews who worshipped the god of Abraham. 
And then there were all the other pagans who worshipped many, many gods and many, many temples. Animals were regularly sacrificed, and that meat became widely available to anyone who wanted to procure it, either in the temple dining rooms, or like little restaurants, or they could buy it in the meat market and take it home, this meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god. The controversy in Corinth was whether or not it was okay to eat this meat that was sacrificed in the temple, foreign temple, pagan temples to a pagan idol. Remember back in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul said, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, Paul spent, remember from Acts, it tells us that he spent 18 months in Corinth teaching them. He wrote a letter to them. It was a letter that is lost, the, the first First Corinthians. They wrote back to him. So this is not a new subject, eating meat, sacrificed to idols. This is not something that Paul is coming fresh to them with. They have been going back and forth as to whether it was right or wrong. The Corinthians believe that they know the answer. They think they have the answer. And their answer is they have decided that it's okay. It's a, it's a freedom that we have, and it's okay for us to do this. They're comparing it like uh, the freedom of Romans 14 and 15, which basically we have the freedom to eat food that the Old Testament prohibits. Just don't force that freedom on others, and don't force your lack of freedom on others. And it says in Romans 14 and 15 that if you, if you can't eat that meat, uh, the pork that you're now free to eat, if you can't do it in faith, don't do it because it would be sin for you. But this is different. This, there is an objective answer to the question, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And their question really is, uh, commentator David Garland says, is not can we eat meat sacrificed to idols, but why can't we? Because Paul has already told them the answer. And they have come back with, well, why can't we? So Paul is giving the answer to this question. They've wrote to him about it. And he gives the answer in three chapters, 8, 9, excuse me, 8, 9, 10, and 11, verse 1. That's a long answer, isn't it? And, and he doesn't get to the final answer until chapter 10. He doesn't give the answer up front. So here's the answer so far that he's given to them. He's building a case. He doesn't just say, um, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Here's my answer. He's building a case. This is what he's said so far. Knowledge puffs up because people think they know more than they do. So you need to be careful of your knowledge. Second of all, love for God and others is always the guiding principle. Third, idols are nothing. They're not, there's no gods behind them. They're just idols. But there is only one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. The implication of what he has said so far is we worship God and not idols because that would be idolatry. And, of course, that's clearly wrong. And the Corinthians and the Paul would all agree that idolatry is wrong. But he's just building a case. So he starts out with what we know to be true. And what Paul is showing in our passage this morning is the consequence of their position. So you've chosen this position that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You don't have enough knowledge and you're not being driven by love. So when you do this, what happens? What are the consequences? And what we see, as we just read, some people's faith is ruined by it. So... In chapter 9, he's going to give an example of, from his own life of the proper use of love and liberty. And then in chapter 10, he is going to give the final answer. Now, in order to fully comprehend and understand and interpret chapter 8, we have to peek ahead. Otherwise, we don't really understand. Uh, chapter 8 can be misinterpreted. In fact, it has been by many who have taken chapter 8 in itself and said, uh, well, we're free in Christ, so therefore it, it is okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols because idols are nothing, and you just need to be careful that you don't offend your brother. That is not what Paul is saying. So turn a page to the right to chapter 10, maybe two pages if you have a huge Bible or a small Bible. Chapter 10, I want you to just listen to what Paul says. The question about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Just follow along with me. He says, 
I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the seas, using the example of Israel and Israel in the desert. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. Spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. When we get to chapter 10, we'll fill this out more. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things. Do not be idolaters. See where we're going with this? See where Paul is getting to the final answer? Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Eat and drink. What were they worshiping? A golden calf. And the first commandment was, You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any images. And they made a calf. And they were eating, and they were drinking, and they rose up to play. Verse 8, the rising up to play is a euphemism for verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Does God take idolatry seriously? You bet he does. And he was just getting started with this new nation, Israel, and he he says, I need to nip this in the bud. Nor let us try the Lord, verse 9, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We look at the nation Israel, the mistake that they made, so that we do not make the same mistakes. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This is looking back to chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, We all know we have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known what he needs to know. Let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 13, many of you have that in your memory bank as one of the first uh, verses that I, that I uh, uh, memorize, and we'll, we'll fill it out with more application when we get there. But what is the context? Idolatry. The temptation to idolatry. Flee idolatry. The only other time Paul said flee anything was in chapter uh, 7 when he said flee immorality. Now he says get away from it. Flee idolatry because you are being tempted to it. He says in verse 15, There I speak to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the And now he compares this whole thing and he uses as his argument communion. Oh, I don't have a communion cup up here. Anyway, he uses communion. I need two of them. Anyway, um, he uses communion, the Lord's Supper, as an, as an example. And he says in verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the, in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we have communion, the bread represents the body of Christ, but it also represents the body of Christ. The cup represents the blood of Christ, but we are sharers in his blood. The word sharing means, is the word koinonia, many of you know that word, which means fellowship. We participate in the body and the blood of Christ when we have communion. And he's saying, look at communion. This is a, this is a ritual, it is a worship that we take part in where we eat the bread and we drink the, uh, the cup. And it is a, uh, it, 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 we are saying that, that we are all uh, of, of one body and we share in Christ. So he then goes on to say then, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? They're nothing. There's no, there are no idols. They don't, there's not a real God. And the things that are sacrificed to them are, are nothing. He says, no, but I say, 
that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers, fellowshippers with demons by what? Eating meat sacrificed to idols. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't come to church and have communion and go to the idol temple and eat and drink to demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy because he is a jealous God that we worship him only? We are not stronger than he, are we? So what is, the, what is the, Paul's final answer? Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Absolutely not. It's fellowshipping with demons. You're cohorting with doctrines of demons. And you're putting yourself in close proximity with, with demon worship. So you can't go into the temple and eat meat sacrificed to idols. And then he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So be careful about doing this. And then he uses a second example. The first that he just gave was in the temple. The second is this. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions. Because there's nothing. There's nothing in the meat. There's nothing in the idols. So if you go to the meat market, don't say, hey, where did this come from? Because as soon as you're, you're made aware that it came from idol sacrifice, you go, sorry, I can't eat it. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions. And then he says in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go to their house, that is, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if someone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. So those living in Corinth, Paul says you can't go to the idol temple and eat meat sacrificed to idols. If you buy meat in the marketplace and you find out that it was sacrificed to idols, you cannot eat it. If your neighbor says, hey, we're having a barbecue to, uh, for my son's birthday, come on over. And you go over and he's cooking these steaks. You don't say, where did you get these steaks? He's talking about an unbeliever. And he says, oh, wow, we, well, we went to the temple this morning. We offered a sacrifice for my son because it's his birthday, and we brought the rest of home for a steak fry. Enjoy. You say, that's where you say, sorry. This then becomes a witnessing opportunity for you to say to your neighbor, I only worship one God. There is one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm sorry I cannot participate in doctrines of demons. So Paul's final answer is what number one it is not okay to knowingly eat meat sacrificed to idols because it is part of demonic worship paul didn't simply give his opinion as to whether we can eat idol food he will he has the final word and he says no you should never know knowingly do so under any circumstances if you're unaware he says of the origin of the food, don't ask. And just eat the meat, because it's just meat. But as soon as you know where it came from, even if it's an expensive cut of meat, you say no. Now, here's the thing. We, I mentioned this last week. It's hard for us to see this in, in our culture. What in our culture is like this? We don't really see much like this. We were talking uh, at our... Um, uh, our sermon prep time in Caleb, who grew up on the mission field, was telling us about the uh, Yanomami people in Brazil and Venezuela, right? They live out in the bush. And one of the things that they do is when uh, they have a family member die, um, they will, I hope I got this correctly, they will cremate, cremate that person. They will take the bones of that family member and then they make this drink. And then they drink this as part of their worship. So if you are a missionary on the mission field and you, you win, you know, a Yanunami guy, a family, they come to Christ and they say, hey, is it okay for us to drink this stuff? What is your answer? No, of course not. Of course not. 
And that's Paul's answer here. We cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols because it is part of demonic worship. And it's not okay, second of all, to eat meat sacrificed to idols because you cause others to stumble into idolatry, and that's not very loving. That's what chapter 8 is all about, causing others to go back into idolatry. So one lesson here, just before we move on, and that is that the temptation to idolatry is strong and pervasive, not just among the Anamami people in Brazil, not just during, you know, in Corinth where there were temples everywhere, but in our day, and it's hard for us to find the equivalents, but there are many things that vie for our attention. We, like the song we sang, Lord, we have not loved you as we ought. We have not sought you. We have not placed you first in all things. And when anything comes before God, it can become an idol in our life. And so that temptation to idolatry, even though we think, oh, I don't have any idols, and that would be stupid for me to put an idol or some statue in my house that I would bow down to. But what other things do we bend the knee to in our life? Hobbies, food, people, money, success, all those things we talked about in last week. And I hope you took some time to think about your own life and the possible idols in your life. But the existence and the nature of God categorically excludes all idolatry. He alone is God. He alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be the object of our love and our attention. And idolatry throughout all of the Old Testament, you need, you need to understand this, was thought of as spiritual adultery. That's how seriously God took idolatry. When his people went after foreign gods, he called it harlotry, adultery. Because they had a covenant relationship, just like marriage, that was so important. And, and just as it is wrong for you who are married to have a, 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 an immoral relationship with someone who is not your spouse, so is it immoral and idolatry and spiritual adultery to worship anything other than God himself. It is spiritual adultery. So... With that as the background and the final answer, let's go back to chapter 8 and, and apply that grid on verses 7 through 13, where we're going to see four principles. Four principles. Back in chapter 8, the first principle is in verse 7. That says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. The first principle is a weak conscience is easily violated. And that's what was happening, that some had weak consciences, a conscious understanding of idolatry. They lacked a full understanding. And so they were easily violated. Now, when he says some have this knowledge... Uh, where he says, however, not all men have this knowledge. The knowledge that he's talking about includes the fact that he just said in verses 1 through 6, there's one God, idols are nothing, but the false conclusion that it is therefore okay to eat idol foods. That's the knowledge that he's speaking of here. Some don't have the, the same understanding that, that those in the know have. Those in the know say, Oh, we know that an idol is nothing. There's only one God, so it's okay. And Paul is saying, no, not everybody understands that and has reached that conclusion. Some have concluded that it is wrong, but they're doing it anyway. Others, those in the know, do it, and they have no problem with it whatsoever. It doesn't bother their conscience. Now, when it comes to the conscience... <clears throat> Um, we think of the conscience usually as some subjective, experiential, or emotional concept. We say, let your conscience be your guide. Wasn't that what Jimmy Cricket said? <laughs> yeah, let your conscience be your guide. That can be a dangerous thing, right? Um, we think of it as it, I'm in a situation that just doesn't feel right, so my conscience is telling me I shouldn't do something. Um, the conscience, however is 
is our moral compass. And that moral compass is informed by truth. Our convictions, our beliefs, our values that we have collected as believers all form our conscience. And you need to be careful of your conscience. I, uh, one of the writers I read this week uh, gave an example of a cartoon from Dennis the Menace. Remember, is he still around? I don't know. Dennis the Menace. And there was uh, this cartoon where Dennis the Menace got into trouble and he was put in, into timeout in a corner and he was sitting by himself. And he said, I got bad advice from my conscience. That can happen. I thought it was okay. But a conscience is the consciousness of what is right and wrong, informed by biblical truth. So our values, our convictions, our moral compass is always, always comes from the Word of God. Uh, Garland said this, Conscience refers to that faculty of moral evaluation that adjudicates or judges whether an individual's actions are right or wrong. So you know because it's right, and you know that it's wrong, so that when you're in a situation, your, 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 your conscience, your consciousness of right and wrong comes out. But the person who does not have this knowledge has a weak conscience, and they lack understanding to keep them from idolatry. They're continually violating their consciousness of what is right and wrong. So these weak are basically immature believers, I believe. They don't have the convictions that are, that are fully and properly informed by biblical truth. So, here's a lesson for us. If you have a weak conscience, learn the way of grace. Learn the way of grace. There are some people that are just, they're just, I don't know, they're always questioning themselves. They're always second-guessing. Is this right? Did I hurt your feelings? Is this, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? And they, they can never be at peace because they don't understand grace. That God accepts you. He doesn't accept your, your sin, sinning, but he accepts you and he wants you to enjoy life and he wants you to live a life of peace and happiness. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you are one of those people that is always second-guessing yourself and never sure about something being right or wrong, grow in the knowledge of Christ, but grow in the grace of Christ as well. He has called you to a life of grace, that He accepts you and He wants you to live this life of grace You're saved by grace, and we live by grace. So therefore, develop convictions that are based on biblical principles rather than some religious tradition that you were raised with. You may have a religious tradition that prohibits you from many things, and your conscience is always telling you it's wrong. Grow grow in grace. Cast aside a man-made religious tradition, but grow in biblical principles. So that is the the first principle that we see in verse 7. The second in verses 8 through 10 is this. Ill-conceived liberty destroys others. When you think you have liberty, notice it's in question marks, quotation marks rather, ill-conceived liberty. Liberty. When you think you have liberty, you may not. Like Paul began the, the beginning of this, uh, this chapter, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he doesn't know anything yet. He doesn't know everything about everything. He doesn't know everything about anything. And for the one who thinks that he has liberty in this area of eating meat, sacrificed to idols, those, what are they doing? They're destroying other believers. This is serious business. It's wrong because it's wrong because you're sacrificing uh, idols to demons. But it's wrong because you're destroying other brothers in Christ. So he says in verse 8, But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. This is their position. To some extent, Paul would agree with this. Food doesn't get us closer to God. If we eat certain foods, God doesn't accept us more. He's a God of grace. 
If we abstain from certain foods, God doesn't accept us any more than anything, anyone else. Because God is a God of grace. And he accepts us in Christ Jesus. Verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This liberty of yours indicates that Paul does not share the notion. You can eat whatever you want to eat. That food is always okay with God. That it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The knowers in Corinth thought that it was okay and, and food was nothing. But when Paul says, this liberty of yours, it's sardonic. He, it is clear that their so-called liberty is misguided. He is clear to them that they are mistaken about eating food and that eating food, <coughs> pardon me, they're mistaken that eating food is never an issue with God. Their position is, it's just food. Idols are nothing, so I can do whatever I want. Paul, as he gets in chapter 10, yeah, but it's being offered to idols, so don't eat it. Food is amoral, but here's another example. You can have all sorts of food in your house, but if you can't stop eating, it becomes sin, right? Sin of gluttony. We don't talk about that very often. You know, the three accepted evangelical sins are greed, gluttony, and gossip. That's a, we can do those three, and we're okay. But gluttony is one we don't want to talk about, and yet uh, so we can take food and misuse it. You, the food that is immoral... Amoral, rather, has, there's nothing of significance in it. And in the same way, you can take that same amoral food and offer it to an idol, and then it becomes evil. And that's what he's saying. So the example here is, he says in verse 10, For if someone sees you who have knowledge, quote-unquote, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So here you are, old Corinthians. You have this knowledge. You have this liberty of yours. It's a no big deal. And you go to the open-air restaurant at the, the temple, and your friends have just offered a sacrifice. They come out with the meat, and you're drinking, and you're eating, and you're having fun. And your Christian brother walks by, seeing you eating meat in the idol's temple, won't he be tempted to eat himself? Yes. Yes, and the irony is this. In this verse where he says, he will be strengthened, won't his conscience be strengthened? It is the word edified. He's using it ironically. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. And so what he's saying here is when someone, when, when someone sees you, rather than building them up, you are edifying them to be enticed, to be encouraged, to do something that they know that is wrong. And they do. So they go back into idolatry. It's not just that they, they here is not what happens. They, they're walking by and they see you eating meat, sacrificed vials, and they, and they go, oh, I'm offended. We're not talking about being offended. We're talking about a stumbling block to sin. He says, because they will be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols, taking part in doctrines of demons. So he is, he is not talking about just offending your brother. We, we, we get this idea in the church that we, we should never offend one another with what we do. Boy, that, how's that going, right? <laughs> We offend each other all the time. And so we, we think that uh, um, uh, we should never be offended. But that's not what he's talking about. He, he's talking about actually causing someone to sin. When I was a new Christian, and I've shared with you my, my past, I, I abused alcohol. I was a drunkard, okay? Drunkenness is sin. And when I came to Christ, I repented of that sin, and I had to leave it behind in order to follow Christ. And other things I repented of as well. And as a new Christian, I would never think of going into a bar. I would never think of having a drink. 
And the longer I became a Christian, more and more I would, I would come across Christians who drank alcohol. And I was offended. Why? Because they weren't doing, they didn't have the same conviction as me. Whose problem was that? It was my problem. Now, if I were to go out to, you know, in those early days as a Christian, if a, a brother were to invite me out to, to a dinner and, and he, you know, he, the, the server comes and says, hey, can I get, bring you some drinks? And he says, yes, I'd like a glass of wine. How about you, Ben? No, I, I, I don't drink. You know, I used, to, I used to drink before I became a Christian. And I can't drink anymore. Okay, so the night goes on and he starts to get drunk. More and more glasses of wine are coming. And he, and, and he says to me, oh, come on, have a drink. You know, it's, you know Jesus drank. Jesus was a, fr- a friend of sinners. He drank real wine, and, and, and the communion wine is, 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 is real wine. So have a drink. No, 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 I don't want to. But by his example of drunkenness, if I were then to, at that time, partake and then become drunk... And then it's, it's just a short step stumbling block back to a lifestyle, hanging out in bars, my old life. That's what we're talking about here. Not that I'm offended that you drink alcohol. I'm offended that you're wearing a mask. I'm offended that you're not wearing a mask. I'm offended that you have long hair. I'm offended that you don't have long hair. I'm offended that you go to movies. I'm offended that you drink alcohol. I'm offended that you're offended. And that's pretty much what it all comes down to. We're not talking about offense. We're talking about leading a brother into sin. So, here's the lesson for us. We have a tendency to misuse our liberty for selfish purposes. We are free from the law. We are free from legalism. But we are never free to sin. We are never free to sin against our brother. And to cause our brother to sin is horribly wrong. We should take stock of how the insistence of our rights might hurt others sometimes. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Doesn't that sound like what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Yes, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need to worry about all these legalistic things that you were raised with. Just love the other person. By the way, this is not a command, and there is never a command in the Scriptures for you to love yourself. This assumes that you do love yourself. Self-love is part of current psychobabble and self, you know, self-love. It's almost a cult. The idea of uh, uh, that you can determine your own ways and you need to look out for your... That, that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is always you serve God and you serve others. Like Paul said... To the men in Ephesians, fine, no one ever hated in his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. It's just natural that we do this. So therefore, love your wife that way, in the same way that you do love yourself. But if you seek to love others in the same way that you naturally love yourself, then everything will be fine. But we have a tendency, because of our flesh, I've got my freedom, and I don't care what someone else thinks. Whenever we have an attitude like that, we need to be checking that because love should be um, uh, supreme. The third principle is in verses 11 through 12. Spiritual ruin of another is an offense against Christ. When we take part in the spiritual ruin of another Christian, it is an offense against Christ himself. He says in verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. This is strong language. This is the same word that that Paul used back in chapter 1 where he said, um, um, 
those who do not believe in you are being destroyed, going to hell. I don't think he's talking about someone going back and losing their salvation, but he's talking about spiritual ruin. And notice the the strong language. The brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brethren... And wounding their conscience, wounding means to strike a blow at their conscience, causing them to sin when it is weak. You actually are sinning against Christ himself. That is how close we are to one another. This is, this is the body of Christ. Christ is here. Christ is in us. You are all the temple of the Holy Spirit. We together collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we cause the spiritual ruin of another brother, we have sinned against Christ. It's very, very strong words. It's shocking. Causing another Christian to fall back into an idolatrous lifestyle. This is why it's not about offending people. But it's causing someone to take part in sin. And there could be nothing worse than causing that spiritual ruination of a brother for whom Christ died. I've seen it many times, and you have seen it as well. The, the greatest uh, grief to me as a pastor is when we see people of faith walk away. And you know why? They get involved in sin. Someone, you know, God, God forbid that we were the ones who led them to that sin. And it is, a, it is a horrible thing, and he, and he takes it very, very seriously. They are spiritually ruined, and they walk away from the Lord because you have sinned against your brother, and you have sinned against Christ himself. The lesson for us is this. And by the way, this looks forward to chapter 10 in communion. We share together in the body and the blood of Christ. We share together in the body and the blood of Christ. And because of our union with him, anything that destroys that unity is a violent affront to Jesus Christ himself. Be careful about abusing your liberty with sin and it becoming an occasion for another Christian to sin as well. We talked about this in our, in our, um, our uh, sermon prep time. You know, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was called a drunkard. He was called a glutton. And some Christians can say, well, you know, um, I need to get out there and I need to be a friend of sinners. So I'm going to go with my buddies. Uh, you know, it's a night, guy's night out. We're going to the strip club. But I'm there to witness for Jesus. I don't think you can do that. Or I'm going to go to the Kager just to be a moderating influence, kids. Because they need Christians there, right? Jesus was there and he was a friend of sinners. Yes, you need to be a friend of sinners. With prostitutes, with tax gatherers, with drunkards, with alcoholics, with drug addicts. But you never share in their sin. And we never tempt a brother to share in that sin. So don't use this as an excuse. But you see, this shows how much Christ loves us. That he would say this, you are sinning against me. When you cause a brother to sin, not be offended, but sin. The last principle is this in verse 13. Love is a supreme judge of liberty. It's the supreme arbiter. Love is the, the, that is the, the thing that helps us to know when it is right and what it is, when it is wrong. It is love, of course, that is informed by knowledge and biblical truth. But knowledge puffs up and love edifies. That's what, how he started out. And this is what he says in verse 13, which is a statement of love. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble, which is sinning, not being offended. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, 
If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat sacrificed to idols again. You know why he didn't say that? Because he would never eat meat sacrificed to idols in the first place. So he broadens the concept almost as a, as a hyperbole to say, I wouldn't eat anything. And I think it is a hyperbole. He's saying, this is the extent to which I will go to protect my brother from sin. I will protect him in any case. He's going to illustrate his love in chapter 9, how he applies true love in liberty. But here he is highlighting two things. The place of love, excuse me, and the serious of causing another to sin. His point is to show the extreme love that we are to have for one another. Of course, Paul is going to continue to eat meat. He will. But he's saying that he would go to any major, any length to sacrifice anything to keep a brother or a sister from sin. I liken this to his statement in Romans 9.3, which also could not be. In Romans 9.3, he said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He said, if I could go to hell, I would. For my, my Jewish brothers. Of course, he couldn't. It's a similar statement here. Our freedom should not be constrained by weak Christians, nor should we have um, our, our freedom that we just do what we want to do. The lesson is this. We should be willing to go to any lengths to protect the faith of a brother or a sister. Sometimes out of love we forego our own rights, true liberties, to keep from destroying a brother causing them to sin. Not just not offending them, but causing them to sin. Particularly, we must remember that a stumbling block was causing others in this context to revert to idolatry. For Paul, this would never ever do, never. Concluding this, two things. What God has forbidden, we do not have freedom to do. We don't have the freedom to idolatry. We have the freedom to eat food, but we don't have the freedom to eat meat that has been sacrificed to a demon. We have freedom to eat food, but we don't have freedom to abuse food. Alcohol is not forbidden, but drunkenness is. Movies are not forbidden, but exposing our minds to gratuitous sex, violence, and vulgarity may be for you. Sex is a gift gift from God, but forbidden outside of marriage. Food is a good gift from God, but gluttony and self-starvation are sin against the holy temple spirit. And so we must be careful that we don't use our freedom as an occasion for the lusts of the flesh. Be careful of using the cover of witnessing, as Jesus did, to take part in sin itself. Secondly and finally, when you are unsure, don't let your conscience be your guide. Let love rule. Love is always informed with truth. And the love that we're not, talk, we're not talking about is this emotional, oh, I love you guys so much with all my heart. No, it is a decision. It's agape love. It's a love of sacrifice for another person. That is the, the love that we're talking about. Love God and love others. Now, I want you to take out your communion elements as the um, music team comes up. And I want us to revisit what Paul said in chapter 10. It's a perfect time to recall this. If you are here as a believer in Jesus Christ and you're visiting Valley Bible Church, this is a family meal and we invite you to the table. If you know Christ as Savior, we invite you to the table. If you don't know Christ as Savior, 
Uh, we don't expect you to take part in something that you don't really understand or believe in yet. But maybe you might believe at this moment that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he has died for you and risen from the dead. This is the gospel. That if you confess your sin to him, he will in that instant cleanse you of all of your sin and make you a child of God and you will be born again and partake new in the table this morning. But let me recall what Paul said so that we might take this seriously. He said this. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless. And he's speaking of community. They would take the cup and they would bless it. Is not this a sharing, a koinonia, a participation, a fellowship with Christ and his blood? It is. It's not his real blood. It represents, but by faith we participate in him. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. This is our participation with him. This is our koinonia. This is our fellowship with the body of Christ. We are united with him. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. When we partake of it, we are declaring our unity in Christ by the blood of Christ. But then he goes on to say, you can't drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. My little children, John said, flee from idolatry. Flee from idols. Keep yourself from idols. It is pervasive in our world. It's hard to see how the Corinthians... uh, sacrificing animals in pagan temples, how that relates to our culture today. But each and every one of us know our level of commitment to Christ. And as we partake of the Lord's table, this is always a time of renewal. If there's sin, confess it. If you're just messing around, get serious. If your conscience is weak, grow in grace and knowledge. So... Take a moment, and we will joyfully participate together, knowing that he accepts us in the beloved. We are grateful, God, for your grace to us, knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that cleansing that is ours in Christ by his body and his blood. And as we partake of that which represents that, we do so with gratitude, with thanksgiving for all that you have done for you alone are God. And we worship and serve you only. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me.